welcome everyone as we're all filtering in. Uh, my name is Rita McGrath. I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. Uh, my guest today is Stephen Bailey, uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Exec Online. And we'll be talking about that in just a minute because it is one of the more exciting companies uh, and it's been recognized. He's been recognized by Ernst & Young as the entrepreneur of the year, which, which is great. You know, after 10 years of grinding effort, somebody finally notices. <laughs> Um, but as we're we're gathering ourselves up uh, just a couple of housekeeping things this is being recorded so don't say anything you don't want your grandmother finding out about Um, and uh, it will be available for replay for those of you that can't make it live or if you know somebody that would like uh, to dip in uh, later on so Stephen welcome thank you so much really really uh, happy to be here Rita and looking forward to a great conversation me too, me too. So I thought maybe a way of uh, just getting us started and helping our listeners you know, learn a little bit about you is maybe just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up in the world of executive education. Well, you know, sometimes I, w- I wonder how it happened myself. Uh, so I am a, uh, a recovered lawyer. Uh, both my parents were doctors, so they were, they, they were wondering where they went wrong when I told them I was going to go to law school. Uh, but, uh, but they got on board. And after they got on board and I went to a big law firm, I stayed for all of about 18 months and decided uh, you know, that the law wasn't creative enough for me, innovative enough for me. Uh, and so I went to join a startup, actually, with a couple of folks who I'd been to law school with. And I uh, started to learn about this world of entrepreneurship. And uh, I, the, the startup was sort of focused on um, large enterprises that had operations in international markets. And so um, we helped them with their, you know, sort of emerging markets, we sort of called them at the time operations. So we did events all over the world, met leaders all over the world. And it was the second time in my career, the first time at my law firm that I really felt the lack of diversity at leadership levels in organizations. But I went from having that experience in one law firm to having that experience with companies that had operations globally. So I would sit in rooms all over the world with expats that were running international businesses and was almost always men and was almost always white men. Um, And it didn't matter whether I was in Asia, Miami, London. Uh, And so as I thought about what I wanted to tackle, um, especially something that was near and dear to my, my personal experience, this idea of how do you create much more inclusiveness and equity at leadership levels of organizations um, became a passion and a focus. And that's ultimately what uh, led me to Exec Online um, once I left our Frontier Strategy Group, and which was the name of the previous company, and thought about what I wanted to do next. And the insight, as I understand it, happened in Harlem. <laughs> it did indeed, yes. I was, uh, I was walking down the street in Harlem. I'd, I'd left... Um, my, my, uh, my company, I was the CEO of the company at the time, and I would, took some time off and really thought about what I wanted to do that could have a big impact. And so these ideas of leadership, uh, equity, and inclusiveness were swirling around. This was also around the time, so this was 2011 into 2012, where you started to see these interesting models where universities were partnering with for-profit companies for the first time. So uh, you had companies like 2U, and Coursera, but they were all focused on the consumer space. And so what I was interested in was, you know, could you start to leverage those models in some way um, to bring equity to corporate America? Mm-hmm. And walking down the street, you know, you kind of have all these ideas swirling and literally this idea of well, what if you could partner with business schools to take, you know, their 
training and development and bring it to enterprise customers in a different and kind way. And so that was the beginning of what is now, as you said, been a 10 year plus journey. Um, and, uh, and I've loved most moments of it. I think most entrepreneurs will tell you, not every moment, but most moments have been absolutely magical. That's fantastic. So I want to take just a minute because I think um, the history of online, well, online education in general and executive online education is a very checkered one. Um, so if I go all the way back in the history of like online education, at first it was going to be radio, you know, that took over education right back in the day. And then after radio kind of didn't live up to that promise, then it was television, television is going to wipe out, you know, education as we know it. And of course that didn't happen. Um, and then when the internet came along, it was gonna be the internet, the internet's gonna make you know uh, conventional education obsolete. And we had, um, do you remember Fathom? Um, yes. Like a multi-million dollar education startup where the Ivy League kind of wrote off like all the yep. money they made for about five years. <laughs> um, and then we had MOOCs, right? And MOOCs were gonna completely demand. And, and so I think what's interesting to me about that is it takes time, you know, it takes time before any new, um, technology or any new invention gets figured out, right? That, like, I mean, I think about when movies were first created, right? Nobody knew what a movie was. And so what did they do? They filmed stage plays. And the use case was, we're going to be able to democratize the world for stage plays and you'll be able to watch them. Right. Anyway. And it took decades before we figured out, hang on, if it's a movie, like you could film things out of sequence and then repackage them and, and all these other insights that led us to know what movies are. And I have to say, I think we're just, and, and an executive online's a leader in this, we're just coming to realize what it actually takes, A, to do this well in a way that's really compelling, but B, to actually get the outcomes that, that you want. And as you and I have talked about, it's not the tech, right? That's right, that's right, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, I think wh whether it's radio, um, whether it's TV, whether it's online, you can't lose sight of how people learn. And learning science is absolutely critical to building any successful set of learning experiences, whether in the classroom, whether they're on radio or whether they're online. And so for us, what we were excited about was leveraging this medium um, to really bring a, a fresh approach to learning to leaders and organizations. And in particular, what we saw is the opportunity. I think at that time, a lot of people were focused on the downsides. You know, it's not as engaging. You're not, you know, next to your peers in a classroom. You don't have that energy. But there was one big opportunity that we saw, which was that online provided a medium to actually help people learn as they worked. And that, you know, if you look at any learning science, if you can apply as you learn consistently, you can achieve differentiated outcomes. And so our entire focus, because our mission um, was really about driving different in kind leadership, equity in organizations. And we saw learning as the great enabler. If organizations could democratize access to learning, then you could create much more mobility in these organizations, create much more equity at senior le levels. Well, in order for that to be true, the learning has to work. And so for us, it was about how do we take this nugget of applied learning build it into everything we do and not just create online content, but create online learning experiences that change leader mindsets and behaviors and gave them confidence as they were learning that they should apply what they were learning to their real world challenges. I love that. And and the way you went about building the company, I thought was really smart. And of course, this is how you and I first met, um, which was to say, you know, it's not enough to just 
operate a platform, right? It's got to have social standing. It's got to have evidence of social proof. It's got to have the science behind it. Um, but you went out and very deliberately chose seven business schools uh, to partner with. And I was particularly proud of the fact that Columbia um, Exec Ed, under the guidance of then Dean Mike Malafakis, uh, took the initiative to say, hey, you know, this, this could work and we're willing to take a chance on you know, what was at the time kind of a fledgling company. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think you could say that. <laughs> we didn't have um, a platform yet, so that, you know, that counts as fledgling, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember the first time we were trying to kind of get connected to the platform and somebody was explaining to me really, really earnestly that you had to use this browser called Chrome, which you might not know about. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, so that strategy, I mean, how did you make that happen? Because... And I, I think it's to your credit as a founder and as the face of the company that these really reputable schools were willing to take a chance on that partnership. Yeah, you know, it's um, I'm, I'm always thankful and, and grateful for partners like yourself, partners like Columbia, um, some of our early partners, Berkeley um, was, was right, you know, sort of at that very beginning and, and sort of seeing that opportunity to um, of what was possible. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is trust. And so how do you build that trust? Well, first, listening, spending a lot of time, you know, because I think particularly I try to put, I try to demonstrate empathy and sort of put myself in the shoes of, of uh, Columbia or Berkeley or Rita McGrath, right? Um, and thinking about what, what would you want from a partner? What would be your concerns? What would be your fears? And I think the biggest fear that we identified very early on was, gosh, is this just a tech company like so many entrepreneurs that are that is in selling us a dream and doesn't really care about what we care about mm -hmm. and isn't committed to what we're committed to. And so a lot of discussion of, of first of all, listening, understanding needs, making it clear that we were really about making our partners successful. We were a mission-oriented company that was trying to change the world for the better, and that that was going to infuse everything we did, even as we also created a business model that would be compelling for schools and faculty and a product that would be compelling for companies and leaders and organizations. And so, you know, from the earliest days that uh, what we call inclusive collaboration, which is still one of our um, company uh, values to this day, really infused, I think, those partnerships with a level of trust. And even when we fell short. Uh, it, it gave everyone confidence that we were going to do everything we could to address it uh, and that we were going to learn fast uh, and, and get up the curve as quickly as possible in a very dynamic space. And so, you know, one of the uh, earliest uh, meetings with Columbia, we sort of had everyone excited about the idea. And I remember Mike Malafakis, you mentioned the head of executive at the time said, oh, you know, just one more step. Uh, you know, we're, we're just about there. Just come in and show us your platform. And we'll be good to go. And and uh, my heart sunk because we didn't have a platform. Um, and so um, we came in and showed a very early version of what we had. It missed the mark. And to Mike's credit, he came back and said, this missed the mark. Three months, come back, show us what you have, and we'll see. And so it gave us focus um, and, and it gave us purpose on a very abbreviated timeline. And we did two things. One, we made tremendous progress on the platform. But the second thing we did, and this became a hallmark of everything we did going forward, is we actually invited companies to co-create the product with us and to signal early commitment as charter customers that if we built something with 
Columbia or with Berkeley, our early partners, that they would come as customers. And so when we came back in three months, we came with a better platform. Still, I would cringe if I looked at it today. But we also came with something that they weren't expecting, which was this group of, at the time, about a dozen charter customers. My co-founder, Mark Ozer, and I went hand, you know, arm in arm and, and, and had these meetings, had these conversations. And we got to a place where the school said, well, you're still not there, but if you can make this much progress in three months, you're a partner we want to hitch our wagon to. And what I, that's so smart. I mean, that's so great. You know, and I have to say, just editorially, you know, the recent sort of last four or five years of insanity in venture funding, where like you don't have a customer, you don't have a value proposition, you're selling air <laughs> because it's all about getting fast and people back trucks up with money to your garage. Um, and it's just so refreshing to hear that you really thought about like who needs to be involved, you know, who needs to be supported and how you demonstrate that proof of concept. Because what I think is also interesting is unlike some players who perhaps I shouldn't mention out of Dallas, unlike some players, you didn't come at it with, uh, you know, we're going to disrupt the business school model. You came at it with, look, business schools can only serve this tiny population. And it really is a tiny population. I mean, I run my uh, leading strategic growth and change course in person maybe three, maybe four times a year for 30 to 35 people. And that's a tiny, tiny population relative to the executives that could benefit from it. So you weren't going after that group. You were going after a group that we would never touch. We could never reach them using our conventional approaches and demonstrating that that could work and it could go in parallel with our other offers. And to Mike's credit as well, he was very concerned about the disruptive potential of online. I mean, I, I think he was quite visionary about that and also willing to be patient um, in a school that, to be honest, at the time, didn't see the need to make much of an investment. I mean, we sort of played around a little bit and there was a little bit of money and maybe like one part time video guy would be recruited. But it wasn't a serious commitment to the space at that point. So I thought that was a smart way of doing it. But I didn't know the story about the platform. That was funny. Yeah. You know, it's and, you know, everything is tiny. And so if we'd come two years earlier. Um, I don't think believe our partners would have been ready. And if we'd come two years later, uh, perhaps the moment would have passed. Mm -hmm. But coming at the time when, when there was this recognition that schools need to start thinking about this, at least amongst forward-looking um, executives and faculty at schools, um, and a recognition that it was going to be really difficult for the school to do it on its own, that created the window. Uh, and so timing is everything. And what I would also say to your point, Rita, around, you know, a lot of the money that flows into companies now, particularly early stage, my view has always been product market fit is either cheap or free to demonstrate if you have the right level of creativity and hustle. And so, you know, the ability to sort of, you know, rather than say, just give us a bunch of money and, and, and we'll figure it out, having conversations with your partners, having conversations with your customers, others in your ecosystem, understanding their needs, and at least being able to demonstrate if we were able to deliver this, this is something that people would actually want, feels like a pretty good place to start. <laughs> oh, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. And you know, one of the things um, that, that I study is when these new ventures go terribly wrong. And I tend to look at the corporate ones, but you could as easily point to the startups. Um, and you, know, you just see the same pattern over and over again, untested assumptions, taken as facts, too much money up front, too much in market behavior before you figured out product market fit, you know, not the right ecosystem. I mean, just the list just goes on and on and on. Yep. I think sorting all that out before you take money is a great idea. So let's talk about your investors because you and I share a, a client base with ABS Capital, among many others. Yep. Um, and I would imagine the pitch would have been similar to them, right? 
Yeah, so, the, you know, much like you would imagine, the pitch evolves over time um, from kind of the earliest days. If you think about seed capital and so Kaplan uh, Ventures uh, was our initial seed, lead seed investor. And uh, we also had some really talented individual um, investors who came into that round as well and have been very helpful. Um, but the the fundamental, uh, Andy Rosen, who's the you know, chairman and CEO of Kaplan, saw the vision early um, and uh, sits on our board still today. And you know what we were saying at the time was this space is going to get disrupted. This is the moment. So a lot of it was around the timing. And I think that's often what can get left out of an early pitch is, yes, the world might be moving in this direction, but what I need to know is that you know, the critical moment is now, this is why, and you, know, you can do something different. And so we brought some proof points, some early conversations both on both sides of the market, still mostly PowerPoint. We had a team that we put together um, early that was gonna go after this opportunity. And so we got to a place where um, you know, that was the early vision. And then as we started to grow, we raised our Series A capital um, with um, our partners at Osage in 2014. It was, okay, you've gotten that initial product market fit. There's great traction. Now it's, it's really about getting people excited about, well, how big can this business get? <laughs> is this going to be a niche business that has great growth and then kind of levels off? Or is this really a big market that we should be excited about attacking? Um, becomes the next piece of the story. And then as we move to um, our kind of Series B and Series C raises, um, New Spring did our Series B, ABS, our, our Series C, it becomes about the economics. So, okay, this is scaling, but is this ever going to be an attractive business, an exciting business? You know, those sorts of questions. And then our Series D with Omers was very much about, you know, as you start to think about becoming either a public company or a large private company, are those economic pieces coming into more focus. And often by that time, companies need that next product. So you got something that brought you to this point, but as you're thinking about, okay, what's the next phase of growth? Typically, you know, and at that point for us, this was uh, just in 2021, so we're nine years in, what does the next chapter look like? And that's where what we were able to do with our, you know, sort of first in market applied experience platform, which is the first leadership development platform for the enterprise. So for the first time, an organization can say, we're going to give every leader in our organization access to Rita McGrath at Columbia, right, or our other wonderful faculty across all of our school partners. That's a really revolutionary value proposition. It's never existed before in leadership development. And that has really become the actualization of that mission that I had in Harlem so many years ago around how do you truly democratize access to create better leadership mobility. I love that. I love that. And so you're, you're, um, I would imagine the vision, because you were early on that, um, you know, the whole, I mean, people were talking about diversity and inclusion, but I don't think people connected the kinds of experiences that create opportunity to the development investment, to the, to the leadership investment and the leadership growth investment. And what we've learned, I think, since then is that the selection process for who gets into these upper ranks is multivariate, right? And there's a lot of to come into it, but the development opportunities, the, the chance to reach across the organization and become known, you know, the chance to say, hey, you know, I actually did this thing and here's the result and I can demonstrate the capability of having done that. That those very subtle things often just keep people, keep people shut out, right? And, and I think what you've done is, demonstrated that at scale you can open up opportunities to become known to show competence to you know become part of the club almost as it were uh, which i think is phenomenal 
Yeah, you know, it, it's been that has been the most rewarding part of this journey. And you know, when we when we um, talk about our organization internally, when we're in interviews with people who might be joining our organization, a lot of it is about our mission. And do you share our mission? Are you energized and excited about what, what we're trying to accomplish? And that requires being bold, which is another one of our our, our company values. Um, leading with purpose, and so if you can be bold and lead with purpose, you can really accomplish a lot. And so for us, we took a lot of pride in the fact that we initially created this space of, okay, online leadership development can be something that really scales in the enterprise. And then the next chapter for us was to say, okay, let's take our mission to the next level. Let's really provide this full access. But as we provided this full access, and this was sort of in 2020, we saw an opportunity to change the way that organizations approached equity at leadership levels. And what we found was that, you know, after the terrible murder of George Floyd, there was this space in organizations to think differently than they've been thinking in the past. Just to give you one example, we developed a diversity program uh, that was very forward looking in 2015 with our partners from Yale. Um, and it was focused not just on check the box, unconscious bias training, but truly as a leader grappling with the tough issues of how do you become more inclusive in your decision making. And that was a very you know, sort of on a relative basis, not a great performer for us in our portfolio for several years. After the murder of George Floyd, it moved right to the top of the list, right, of, of, of programs. And so you make these early forward investments, they pay off, but also we saw this opportunity to create space, right, for a different and kind conversation with clients. And so we launched what we call our Development Equity Council, um, which is about three dozen companies that partner with us to really bring uh, equity lands to development. And much as in the pay equity movement, it was about equal pay, this is about equal access to development. Mm -hmm. uh, and can you create an ethic in organizations where you're measuring how well you're distributing access to development opportunity with an eye toward creating those leadership pipelines for much more equitable access to senior levels. And when that happens, it actually also has huge impacts on pay because the biggest gap in pay that exists in companies is differences in seniority and hence compensation that, that comes with that. And so we're really excited about what we've been able to accomplish over the last two years with our corporate partners and kind of changing the conversation around equitable access. Yes, we provide the technology. We also wanted to provide the thought leadership and the structure to change organizations from within. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, talked about this, which is uh, I'll hear senior executives sort of say, well, what we have here is a pipeline problem, whether they're talking about women or whether they're talking about other underrepresented groups. And I'm like, well, of course, you've got a pipeline problem. Put up your your edifice in the middle of a cornfield. There's no oil <laughs> nearby. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I just don't buy that argument because the talent is there. Yeah. Um, it's just not being being recognized or given a chance or being allowed to, um, you know, develop. And it does start, I mean, it does start young, it does start early. Uh, so I love the idea that using your technologies, we could actually take these pretty uh, high-end uh, concepts and really get them much more, I'll, I'll say lower, I don't really like the phrase lower, but, you know, much more deeply into the organization for younger people to really benefit from that so that when they do get to the stage where they're going to come off to a My Fancy program at Columbia, you know, they've already got all that background and they've got that depth and they can now take, use that in-person experience to take it to the next level, right? which I think is is wonderful. That's really well said. And I would just add one thing, Rita, to that, which is, you know, I give you one data point to your point. Um, 
you would think, you know, organizations for long times have had high potential programs where it's okay, let's identify the folks that we think are the future leaders. And one of the big challenges in organizations is that those high potential programs are not very diverse. And it's not because they're not individuals that could fill those programs, women and, and people of color that haven't had access. If I give you one data point, 70% of high potential programs are based on a single subjective nomination by a manager. Whoa, really? I did yes. not know that. And so when you think about, to your point, why we have a pipeline problem, and we think about unconscious bias and all these other things that we know, you can have a lot of well-intentioned people that are looking, that genuinely want to move the needle, but they're looking in the wrong place and they're not really focusing their efforts on measuring the right things and then moving those metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my friends um, uh, who's on the faculty at Columbia talks about the iron law of social physics, um, which is people tend to gravitate towards people that they know, uh, people tend to gravitate toward people that are like them, and people tend to gravitate toward people who share many characteristics in common. And I think one of the problems is those first two mean that you never discover that you have a tremendous amount in common with somebody who you may not know and who's not like you. <laughs> so you're kind, of, you're kind of trying to make things happen um, the wrong way. When you talk about high potential programs, I have taught for many more high potential programs that I can probably even remember. And one of my favorite observations that was made by one of these participants was, he said, oh, I love high potential programs. I've been a high potential person for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is another problem, right? Because people get into these programs and then they just kind of replicate themselves. There's yeah, no, right. there's no sense of, you know, the, the clock is ticking and you need to move, you need to move up or move on. Or, you know? That's right. That's right. And so we can get some other people with an opportunity to be high potential for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have a question about the, the kind of mechanics of scaling a business because, um, you know, many, many people have done ed, ed tech startups. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the parking lots are littered with the, the, the empty, empty prospectuses of firms that didn't make it. So maybe share a little bit about how you thought about, so you're a little band of true believers launching this idea, how do you think about, did, did you put a lot of time into the values and the, the kind of people? Did you, did you think a lot about what it would take to scale this thing right from the beginning or did it kind of grow up accidentally? No, we, we were, we had big aspirations from the earliest days. Um, and, you know, my co-founders, I mentioned Mark, uh, Julia Alexander, who's still our head of product today, Barry Goldberg, who's still our chief technology officer today. I think when we came together, there was a real, belief that we could change the world, right? It might have been a naive belief at the time. But, you know, what I tell my company this day is, you know, you can look around us and you can see lots of reasons why we should be pessimistic about the time we're living in, right? From COVID to economic volatility. I mean, you, whatever it is on a given day, there's a reason to be pessimistic. But one of the things I love about the time we live in, as an entrepreneur, I tend to be an optimist, is that um, never before in human history can fewer people have a bigger impact on the world. You know, we're a 300 person organization and we have partnered with institutions that have been around for hundreds of years, companies that have been around for decades and represent trillions of dollars of market value. And our little company has changed the way that they deliver their value proposition to the world on the school side and changed the way they develop their leaders on the, the company side. And that started with an idea and a small group of people who were crazy enough to think that you could actually make those changes. And it's now materialized into what it is today. And we're still in the early innings of what we feel like we can do. And so, yeah, we're very intentional early days 
bringing people on who share that mindset of excitement around changing the world, um, thinking about the product early uh, as an ecosystem, um, bringing on top partners, bringing on top companies and building together as opposed to building in a vacuum so that you could really create you know, orders of magnitude um, differences in, in, in the pace of change. Mm -hmm. And then also building the product in a way that started to think about what would this look like at scale. So one example, we've always taken a very rigorous approach. And I know you've seen this, Rita, in your programs um, on collecting and analyzing the impact data that we have. So the fact that we focused on applied learning meant that every leader in our programs could work on a project. Um, and whether that's a very detailed project, like a strategy in one of your programs to their business unit, or on our applied experience platform, that could be planning for a difficult conversation you need to have, and you've never had a difficult conversation before. Really figuring out how to pull out those stories, pull out that data around the impact of those types of um, uh, um, projects and, and activities to give organizations confidence that their investments are actually paying off. Because if you start with a pilot of five people, maybe the ROI data isn't as important. But by the time you're serving large organizations that are spending millions of dollars a year with you to develop thousands of their leaders, you better be able to show how this is impacting their business. And that's something that's been built into what we've you know, sort of gone to market with from the very earliest days. So what would an example conversation be? So let's say, you know, meeting for the first time with a head of learning and development, and they're looking at your price tag and they're kind of going, <laughs> how am I supposed to believe you? And by the way, that's not to say you guys are expensive like per head. I'm just saying that the package, you know, can start to add up, uh, but you're affecting hundreds, if not thousands of people. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but, but, you know, still you've got a, you've got somebody who says, well, you know, I've got this finite amount of resource. I spend it with you or I spend it some other way. How does that conversation go? Yeah. So, you know, the way we, we structure our approach is that, you know, we typically go to a company and say, look at all the things that we can do to revolutionize how you approach leadership development. Let's start with something that's really important to you. So let's take a bite-sized chunk, right? And let's prove value there. And then let's expand and really, you know, partner together to realize that bigger vision, much like we did with Columbia in the early days, right? So that in some ways that, that hasn't changed. And so we pride ourselves on being able to prove it from the early days and then prove it over time. But to put in a nutshell, the, what we're able to show to our companies is that if you invest with Exec Online, you're going to do a better job of retaining your leaders. Mm -hmm. The leaders that you retain are going to work harder for you because of the investment you've made and the loyalty you've built. And when they work harder, they're also gonna work more effectively because we're gonna close critical capability gaps that they have around the areas that are important to your execution or strategy. And so when a CFO is able to say, wow, I'm gonna get better retention, the people I retain are gonna work harder or what you might call discretionary effort. And they're gonna not just do it because I'm telling them to do it, they're gonna do it because they wanna do it because they're passionate about the organization, they're passionate and feel better equipped to handle their roles. And oh, by the way, we're gonna show you, you know, before this was their ability to develop a strategy, now this is their ability to develop a strategy. And if you don't believe the quantitative data, here are a hundred different strategy projects that people have pursued in these programs as a result of, of what that's woven into the design of the programs. So you can actually touch and feel the data in a way that you often can't when, when you think about learning impact. 
Mm, I love that. I love that. What I also really like about it, um, and this I think is maybe a more nuanced um, issue, one of the biggest barriers I see to companies effectively thinking about the future and really taking strategic action in a timely way is that everybody's in a hamster cage, right? And it's just nose down, email after email, meeting after meeting, got to get on a plane today, right? Now that we're no, no longer just trapped in our houses. But it's just this busyness, right? This fog of busyness. And one of the things I think your programs do that perhaps isn't as obvious, but I think is incredibly important is it forces people into a different way of thinking, right? You've actually got to think and absorb and slow down and take that bit of time. And I find in, in my work, the qualitative difference that makes is unbelievable. Like, you know, the, the, the quality of something that you get when you spent a good two, three solid days on it is just orders of magnitude different than something you paid attention to for half an hour, put together a good enough PowerPoint and you're kind of done, <laughs> right? Uh, Rita, I think that point is so important. And, you know, often what you hear about online learning relative to in classroom is that, well, are people really going to have the space, mm -hmm. especially now with everyone feeling, you know, overwhelmed and, and they're getting pulled in a lot of directions personally, professionally. And so one of the things that we did very early on was we, we, when we designed these programs, um, we said, we're not going to start with content because people's initial ideas, well, this is just going to be a time suck and I got to watch these videos and I got to check these boxes. Before you watch a single video, before you get into any of the content of the program, we say, choose a business challenge. That's important too. We're going to give you some guidance because you don't yet know that much about the program, but we have tools that help you sort of identify. This is something that I want to work on that's important to me, being able to do my job more effectively. That's the first thing that happens. And that just changes the mindset, to your point. And what we often hear is exactly what you said in feedback, which is, I love this because it gave me the space to attack something that I knew I needed to get right. And I was able to feel more confident uh, in my ability to get after it and actually do it well because I had the space that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to create for myself. And it's so sanctioned by the company. I think that's the- And it's sanctioned part. by the company, exactly, exactly. And, and do you have conversations with people about taking some load off your participants' plates before they engage in the learning? We do, so, and we have companies that approach it a variety of different ways. I mean, we think it's best practice if you're really um, a company that's invested in learning culture. And I think increasingly um, we're in a learning economy where success individually and success uh, as an organization is really determined by whether you can learn faster than the pace of change. Because, you know, if you can learn faster than the pace of change, that's competitive opportunity. And if you learn slower than the pace of change, there's all sorts of competitive risk. And so when we think about it, if that's really the core of what's gonna create competitive differentiation moving forward, every organization should be creating the space for leaders to feel like learning is part of their job and not something they have to do outside of their business. Now, frankly, our clients run the spectrum. There's some that are very forward, um, very front-footed in terms of saying learning time is sacrosanct. Others that are still sort of saying you got to figure it out. Um, but what we try to do is meet uh, leaders where they are and sort of say, here are different types of learning experiences that you can have. If you've got two hours, you can generate a lot of value. If you've got 10 hours, you can generate clearly more value. And so we sort of build, we give leaders the ability to fit it into the time that they have in their lives. Yeah, I like that a lot. 
Um, so one of the things, as you touched on before, that you're very committed to is this idea of metrics and measurement. Um, and I think that's part of your secret sauce, really, because, you know, people say they are data driven, but they're really not. Um, and so maybe share with us the example of your work with women in your programs, because I think that's a really interesting bit of evidence for how important measurement really is. Yeah, it's a, it, uh, thank you for mentioning that, Rita. And this goes back to what we were discussing earlier around development equity and, and the early mission of the company, connecting all leaders to their future potential is how we state it today. Um, but you know, if we were really committed to that, one of the things that we were interested in way back in 2014 was, you know, what percentage of the leaders in our programs are women? And we were the first company to start to collect that data systematically as a matter of course, and we delivered it to our clients, whether they asked for it or not. And in 2014, the, and this is a perfect example of, you know, don't be afraid of, the, of what data is gonna tell you early, see it as an opportunity to, check, to, to, to move those numbers over time. And so when we looked at the first data, it wasn't great. You know, 27%, I believe it was, of leaders in our programs were female in 2014. And for a company that had a mission of, of really creating much more inclusive leadership pipelines, that wasn't a data point we wanted to see. Um, but what we started to do was collect it, put it in front of companies, develop benchmarks, industry benchmarks, cross industry benchmarks. And we would just say to companies, this is your percentage of female leaders and programs. This is your industry benchmark. This is your cross industry benchmark. And what do you know? We saw that number move over time. And it wasn't always a straight line. Sometimes it dipped, but an overall movement to today where over 40%, roughly about 42% of the leaders in our programs are women. And so for us, that shift has been just one example of our true belief in the power of data. You can't manage what you don't measure. And if you're courageous enough to measure things that, and in and, and any other part of business, the best leaders already know this intuitively. No leader says only bring me good data. They're not gonna be in their role for too long if they do, right? And so across every other part of our business, we great leaders ask for data that helps them really understand what's happening. It should be no different on the equity front. Mm -hmm. So where do you think where do you think we are? I mean, I think your observation that the the tumult surrounding George Floyd's murder created a lot of acceleration. I mean, I know in my world there were there were conversations about about equity and development and providing opportunities, but it was sort of a nice to do, right? It wasn't seen as something that was going to have a material impact on our reputation or on the quality of the decisions that we make or on the quality of the talent that we bring in or on our attractiveness as an employer. I mean, all that stuff came much later and in my you know understanding, or at least in my experience. Um, people were not talking about that really I mean, a little bit, you know, some were, but but it wasn't sort of like it wasn't at the top of the list. Yep, <laughs> it was sort I, of totally in the middle yeah. together with, well, we should be environmentally sustainable. And, you know, it sounds like the right thing to say, right? Sorry? <laughs> I said it sounds like the right thing to say, right? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, either you're going to go to the public and say, I don't believe in, in equality, and I think we should really be, you know, exclusionary in all of our personnel practices. I mean, nobody's going to do that. <laughs> And yet, when you look at the actual outcome of what happens, that's de facto the way it works. Um, and so, do you think we're at an inflection point? Do you think this really is now going to become something that 
we stopped talking like remember when quality you know years and years and years ago um and you ask people well, you know what are you doing about quality and they'd say oh you know we do inspections right or we hire really talented people or we make sure we have good engineers and it wasn't until Duran and and some of the other Deming you know and some of the other leaders of the quality movement said well no actually you can measure this <laughs> you know you can improve on it there are techniques you can use to sort of increase your skill on this and i really think anything that's going to have an impact on uh, on the real core of how business gets done has to have that happen right it's got to go from this sort of great idea that we're all talking about to something where there's tools and there's techniques and there's metrics and we all can agree on what the facts mean and there's one version of the truth um it has to kind of go through that process and yep. i wonder where you think we are with the with the equity agenda i'm, I'm overall optimistic and I'll, I'll tell you why um i think we have reached an inflection point and you know whether it's quality whether it's um dei um, one of the key moments, I think, is when you start to shift from process metrics to outcome metrics. Mm. So when it's not that important, it's let's put out some process metrics. I'll give you a perfect example, you know, unconscious bias training. If you looked at a lot of any company that was reporting on this externally, they weren't saying, let me show you the breakdown of my representation across different levels of leadership in the organization. They were saying, great news, we put 10,000 people through unconscious bias training. Now, I have no idea what that accomplished, <laughs> but it well, just shows. Yeah, but the evidence is that putting people yeah. through unconscious bias training often reinforces the bias. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you know what? At the end of the day, you weren't being held accountable for it. All you needed to say was, Everybody sat in a seminar for three hours and filled out a form that said that they completed it. And, and then I get to put it in my shareholder report or out to the public and say, I, you know, I've, I made a, I made a difference. Mm -hmm. And now what you're seeing are organizations actually publishing real outcome oriented metrics. Here's our diversity data around representation. And when leaders are focused on outcome metrics, they behave very differently in terms of driving to those metrics and driving to those outcomes. Because now no one wants to hear about how many people you put through unconscious bias training, especially if it only makes the problem worse. What they want to hear about is what was the result? Mm -hmm. And so we're also seeing that start to get built into compensation schemes where leaders, a percentage of their bonus is now tied to their ability to deliver on these metrics because once again, now organizations are on the hook for it. And it's similar to what you saw in the pay equity movement, um, where once you start publishing these metrics, it takes time and organizations move at different pace. And so it's certainly lots of progress yet to be made, but there's been meaningful and demonstrable progress because of the accountability. And then the other piece I would just point to is I think the, the set of stakeholders that now care about these issues is so broad that CEOs really have to put it at the center of how they're thinking about the future of their organizations. And so it's now employees, your end customer, the investor, the, the institutional investors who invest in your companies with ESG funds and, and now new standards around, you know, sort of what we want to see from an investor perspective. You've got listing, uh, you know, public uh, listing like nasdaq and uh, you know sort of saying this is what we want to see at the board level so this this collection of stakeholders that have now reached this critical mass has put this front and center and so i think you're going to see real progress but what i will say as a caution is progress is not inevitable progress has to continually be pushed on a day-to-day -day basis and as long as there are 
there's real focus on maintaining that accountability, preventing backsliding. For example, in a time of economic volatility, one of my concerns is always, does attention move elsewhere, right? And is it all about, okay, we just have to make sure we're focused on the business outcomes. I would argue that this is core to your business outcomes, but that's something that has to constantly be reinforced and, and, um, and driven. Yeah, and you know, I was having a conversation with someone about um, about the diversity agenda and why, even though we know, and oh, who was this? I was talking to. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it was, it was, but oh, it was with an Irish radio program of all things. And it was like, even though we know uh, that diverse perspectives, and in their case, they weren't talking about race. You know, they were talking about people from a working class background, working with people from a more upper crust background. That was diversity in their conversation. Um, but, you know, how come it's so hard to get people to bring into decision-making context those that are different than they are? And, you know, where I kind of landed on that was because it's work. <laughs> I know for myself, I've tried for years to really diversify the faculty that I use in my programs. And to be blunt, they're not people I normally stumble across in my day-to-day -day network. And so you actually have to go beyond your day-to-day -day network and make an effort. <laughs> you know, when you're busy, it's just all too easy not to do that. But I think it's critically important. And so I think you're right. Part of the challenge when things get tough, when budgets get cut, when people are worried about their jobs is, you know, th those sort of nice to do things fall by the wayside and you get down to mission critical. But I think what we're learning is this really is mission critical. Absolutely. I think, it, and, you know, I totally agree that people, you know, underestimate the fact that, yes, this is work. You have to change the way you do things. And the other piece is people generally are, don't love change. Mm -hmm. And so when the table looks different than it did before in any way, uh, that creates a natural aversion in a lot of cases to, is this the right thing for us to be doing? And that can be change around innovating your product. That can be change around you know, sort of your culture and or your representation within your organization. And so uh, I, would, I would say that at this particular moment, one of the things that's absolutely critical is equipping leaders with the capabilities they need to lead diverse teams more inclusively. Yeah. Because if you're in a, if this change is coming and you feel prepared for it and you feel like you can leverage it actually to be better, then you're going to embrace it much differently than if you have that fear factor that no one will ever state out loud underneath the surface of what if I get my diverse team in a room and I don't know how to lead them. And the evidence is really clear. Diverse teams are the highest performing teams. They're also the lowest performing teams. And the difference is leadership. And so, you know, that type of capability building, um, what we call part of our future ready leader profile, right? Leaders that are, that can lead the diverse teams more inclusively being one key element of it is absolutely critical to really institutionalizing this in organizations and actually long-term success. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, I, I've been involved in a number of um, DEI programs for large corporations. And when you get the, you know, I get the opportunity as I'm preparing to have kind of one-on-one -on -one confidential interviews with some of these people. And you'll talk to some of these mostly male, mostly white senior leaders. And they'll say things like, I'm really uncomfortable giving feedback 
to black women, for example, or I just, as you said, I don't, I, I'm in this room with this diverse team. I have no idea where they're coming from. And my normal habits of leadership, I know aren't going to work, but I don't know what to replace them with. And so I think that's a really astute observation that people need to feel that they've been equipped to do this. Um, and a lot of times we don't do that. We, you know, when you've got a completely homogenous management team, everybody knows the playbook, <laughs> right? And you don't have to explain it to them because they grew up with it. Uh, but when you've got a diverse team, people really do need to um, uh, change things. So um, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting as we've moved through, you know, the combination of a pandemic, global economic weirdness of all kinds. Now we've got armed conflict in, in Europe. Um, we've got the, the struggle over, over social justice. We've got struggle over inequality and all these things in the last couple of years, which have felt like a decade and felt like 10 minutes. I don't know about you, but my time sense is if it happened after March 2020, I can't tell you whether it was 10 minutes or, or like you said, 10 years. <laughs> People will say things to me like, oh, I had this conversation with you in April of 2020. And I'm like, that was then? Like, that was then? <laughs> I thought that was just yesterday. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, do you think do you think there are, I mean, are there lessons you've learned or, or new insights that this time has left you with that you think are going to be relevant as we move forward? I, I don't want to say as we get back to normal. I, I, I don't think there's going to be a normal. <laughs> well, actually, I think that's a lesson. I think that's a lesson is that yeah. we're in a new normal. Uh -huh. um, and I, I, I totally agree with you that the construct of if we can just get through, even if you look at the COVID trajectory, that was always sort of this feeling where we can get through 2020, then you know, when we ring in the new year in 2021, we're just going to go back to normal. And then it was mid-2021 and 2022, and then Ukraine and the murder of George Floyd and all these different pieces of, of um, uncertainty and tumult. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're in a world where that, and this is the whole idea around the learning economy, where we're constantly going to face new challenges. And the question is, how quickly can we adapt, learn, and respond? And uh, to me, that will, will ultimately be the hallmark of success. And I think the faster that we can acknowledge that, the, more, the less unsettling it is, because there's nothing more than a disappointment of, you know, sort of like running a race and you think you see the finish line right up ahead of you. And then you realize, oh, no, that's just a mile marker. I've got another mile to go. Right? That, that, that's, that's tough. And so that's really what I think keeps happening. And so, you know, can we equip leaders, organizations with the capability to help respond to that new normal, I think is, is one piece. Um, I'm an optimist. And so I'm also a big believer that it's important to remind people of what's great about the time we're in. And as I mentioned earlier, we're in a time where there's still lots that we can control and we can have outsized impact in our world um, as a smaller and smaller group. I mean, individuals now have access to social media and these platforms you never had before. You can use that for you can talk about all the negatives, but you can also use that to amplify your message and, and, and do very powerful, positive things. Small companies can have an outsized impact. And so that's another piece that, that I take from this is, you know, the optimistic side of how can we focus on what we can control to drive the change um, that we want to see. And then the third thing I'll say is um, I'm a big believer that, in, that, that going forward, the companies that will be most successful, the organizations that will be most successful are purpose-driven organizations. And I think we've moved from a world where as a CEO, all you needed to do was prove why you weren't a net negative on the world. And in some cases, not even that, 
um, to a world where now it's important to sort of say we exist for a reason other than making money. And here's our contribution to the world that we're excited about, you know, waking up every day and, and helping to contribute to. Yeah, and I think for younger people, that becomes a real test of where they're going to invest their time. I mean, you know, and if I think about people in their 20s, let's just say, right, I mean, they've been through two very challenging years. Um, you know, I know when I started working, you went to an office and you got to be an apprentice and you got to sit in on meetings and you got sort of learning by osmosis. And, and we've been through a couple of years where that has been either very much reduced or just not possible at all. And so when I think about what they are looking for, it's more than just, I mean, yes, of course, I want to be able to pay the bills. I mean, let's not undervalue that. But it's also, you know, am I part of something that's going to be an experience that will help me grow, that'll help me deliver, that'll expose me to new things. Um, and where, you know, even if we part ways, right, it will have been a great time to be there. And I will be very happy that I made that investment. And I think a lot of, you know, senior leaders don't quite appreciate the, the, the depth of those feelings. Um, you know, they're sort of like, look, I give you a paycheck, you turn up to work, like, that's the deal. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I'm not saying in, in every case, that's a terrible deal. Maybe that's what you buy into if you need to pay the rent. But um, I think for, for the real commitment, the kind of thing you're talking about, which is above and beyond, you know, just showing up and moving a pencil from one desk to another. Um, I think you need to have that deeper impact on, on people. I, I totally agree. And I totally understand it. Sadly, I'm no longer in my 20s. I, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't start at Tech Online when I was 12. So I'm not in my 20s anymore. Um, young, 10 years into this. But um, but in all seriousness, I, um, I understand it because that's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to wake up and ever feel like I'm not contributing to making the world a better place and that I don't have a larger sense of purpose. And so, you know, at Exec Online, we focus so much on our mission. We want people who have that feeling of sort of saying, you know, gosh, I'm one person, but I want to leave my impact and I want to work with other people who want to leave their impact. And so part of you know, my career journey was exactly that, like finding the thing. What, is, what are you passionate about? What are the things that, you know, really about the world that you feel like, A, you want to change and B, you're uniquely situated to change. And so for us, that was about leadership equity. And we felt like that was a great contribution because it has so many knock-on effects. Because when you diversify leadership, in organizations, the implications for how those leaders then move those organizations and the perspective they have and how that contributes to our overall economy of our world is just massive. And so that's where we decided to plant our flag. And I'm glad we did. Um, but yeah, I couldn't imagine sort of saying, let me wake up every day, collect a paycheck and, and then, you know, sort of move on to the next thing without really feeling like I'm here for a reason. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember as a kid, a lot of the neighbors in the neighborhood my parents lived in that was the model of work and then they would come home and they would they would have these like workshops in their garages right and they do this incredibly creative imaginative wonderful work but they went to work and kind of parked themselves at the door and I don't think we are looking for that and I think part of it is because we are in this learning economy much more about managing information much more about connections and, and iterations and and that requires a higher level of commitment at work. You know, it's not just like you yeah, do a right. fine thing, right? So I'd that's love right. to finish off um, with some reflections on leadership because my sense is our, you know, our lizard brains, and, and Thomas Music talks about this. He says, you know, our lizard brains still confuse 
confidence with competence. Um, and one of the things that you know we we know holds back people of color, holds back women, is that um, you know they can project confidence, but you've got a much narrower band of acceptable behavior for for starters. Um, you know, if you're too confident, you're abrasive, <laughs> and if you're not confident enough, you're a lightweight. And you know, there's like a narrow band in between. Um, but also, you know, I think what we're looking for leaders to do is 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 changing. In my view, it's you know, we're going from people that run around telling people what to do to people who are creating these enabling environments so that people as close to the presenting issues as possible can make decisions you know, right at the edges. And I'm curious how you see that evolution. Yeah, so it, I think it goes back to development equity. And I'll give you one example from you know, some of the work that we've done with our, with our um, development equity partners. This idea of, okay, well, let's take a, a platform like Exec Online, Supplied Experience Platform. You can open it up to everyone. But the traditional view is if we open it up to everyone and certain people don't self-select in, that must mean that they don't, they don't have leadership potential or they're not interested in leadership. But then if you look at it from a different lens and sort of say, okay, well, if you're someone in the organization who's never been treated as if the organization wants to invest in them, as if the organization sees them a potential leader, if you just send out something and say, oh, great, you can sign up for this platform without the right messaging and focus, then that person is often going to say, well, that couldn't possibly be for me. And so as you think about equity, as you think about inclusion, as you think about more diversity, it also requires us to re-examine, to your point, this archetype of what a leader looks like when they walk through the door, right? This is someone who knows they want to be a leader. And they command respect. And they are, you know, confident and maybe cocky if you're a guy, but maybe not so cocky if you're a woman, right? And so these, these things that we kind of hold is, as um, certainly not well-researched, but, but sort of knee-jerk reactions to what it means to be a leader need to be changed in part because... We, are, we should be inviting a much broader range of people into that leadership pool. And also because to your point, the world is changing. And the one thing we know about leadership is different leaders are needed for different moments. And if you don't have that diverse set of leaders that have different capabilities, different approaches, as you go through this constant change, you're gonna fall behind in the learning economy because you're, you're not gonna have the folks that are the best suited to really lead your organization um, in, in times of, of, of rapid change. Yeah, absolutely. So what I sometimes do in class is I show a graph of like up to 10 presenting contingencies and eight possible team members. And each team member has, you know, uh, say five contingencies they can respond to. Well, if you just have all people with the same five contingencies, you've got a tremendous blind spot. Yep. Um, and that kind of visually gets it across to people that, that what I'm talking about. So how do people learn more and what's next for example? <laughs> so, you know, Exec Online in some ways it's more of the same, which is, you know, until we've connected all leaders to the future potential, we still have work to do. Um, and, you know, for us, it's about continuing to focus on changing the way that development opportunity is distributed in organizations from something that is um, for the few to much more of a mindset of abundance. This can be for everyone. This can change organizations for the better, both from an equity perspective, but also from a business performance perspective. So that's what you'll see us doing every day with our applied experience platform. Um, would love to have folks check us out on LinkedIn, um, where we're always um, you know, sort of uh, posting thought leadership and, and kind of our views on, on what to expect in the space. And then also, you know, visit our website at execonline.com to learn more about what we do.
Absolutely. And I'm going to be joining you, your team, uh, in a program that's happening soon. <laughs> yeah, in about a month. In about a month, we're going to that's come back right. together. So we'll, we'll kind of play play reverse sides here and, uh, and we'll be talking about, you know, what's different in strategy and why that requires a different approach to learning. So, uh, Well, Rita, I mean, we've worked together for a decade now, so clearly we couldn't just do this in an hour. We had to have an honor for us. So I can't wait for that. <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much for making the time. Have a great weekend, everybody. And uh, Stephen and his team are incredibly responsive. If you, even if you're a little company, you know, don't be shy, reach out. Um, and there might be solutions that you could take advantage of. Um, so thank Absolutely. you so much. Have a great weekend.